0: We have just finished up the prologue. It took us three Sundays to get through the prologue of the Gospel of John. Looking at that prologue basically, the, the gist of it is that Jesus was from the beginning. He always was. He was with God. He was God. He became flesh. He is the God man. This is Jesus Christ. He dwelt among us as the and demonstrated the glory of God to us. This morning we're continuing in that same gospel. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 34 this morning. If you're taking notes, the title is called to testify. If you have your Bibles this morning or you have your bulletin, I'd like you to open up to John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Once you get there, if you could please stand for the honoring of the public reading of God's word. John chapter 1. We start in verse 19. Before we begin to read this morning, let's pray. Father, we thank you that in our hands we hold your truth. Father, we don't gather here today to hear the opinions of, of any man or any woman, but God, we come to hear your truth. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us today as we study your word. Father, you would reveal yourself to us and that you would receive all honor and glory we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in John chapter 1, verse 19. I'll be reading from the ESV. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24 tells us, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptized if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So reads God's infallible and Aaron and Holy Word. Please be seated, church. So this morning we do have Fifth Sunday saying, which means it's supposed to be a shortened sermon. Well, forgive me, we have quite a lot of text to get through. And that's going to take precedence this morning. Is studying God's Word, getting through our text, and then we will enjoy a time of fellowship afterwards we've already gone through the prologue and in that prologue we see john the baptist was already introduced look back if you have your bibles open to verses six through nine of that first chapter of john in verses six through nine we read there was a man sent from god whose name was john he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This morning, we're going to go a little deeper into who is John the Baptist. We know that he was sent by God to bear witness about Christ, that all might believe through him. So This morning, as we study these verses together, we'll be looking at three different points this morning, if you're taking notes. The first one we're looking at is the identity of the witness. We'll look at verses 19 through 24 there. Point number two would be the purpose of the witness, verses 25 through 28. And lastly, the message of the witness, verses 29 through 34. So let's go ahead and begin point number one, identity of the witness. So the first thing that needs to be established is the identity of this witness, the one who came it causes us to spend some time investigating. This may be the point that takes the most time this morning to figure out who is this man, John? The one who was drawing big crowds and people are coming out and being baptized by him. Who was he? And that's what we start with in this gospel in verse 19. We read, and this is the testimony of John. Speaking of John the Baptist. The word testimony. If you know anything about John's writing, he likes that word a lot. Testimony or testify, he uses 75 times in all his writings. Why the word testify? Why the word testimony? Why is that so important to him? Well, if you remember the purpose of him writing this gospel in John chapter 20 verse 31, he says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, listen, by believing, you may have life in His name. That there would be a testimony, a witness to the truth, the reality of who Jesus Christ is. This word testimony can also be translated witness. So I want you to think about that word witness. Build in your mind's eye a courtroom. Who are some of the standard, the typical people that are in a courtroom? Who are you building in your mind's eye? Some of you would say a judge. Some of you might say the jury. Maybe the plaintiff, the defendant. Some of you are like, well, I like the bailiff. <laughs> He's there too. But during that proceeding, evidence is submitted, and oftentimes people are called to to the stand to bear witness to give a testimony about an event or an individual. John chapter one verse nineteen starts by saying, John the Baptist is going to be the first witness to the fact that Jesus is God and He came to save sinners. We also read in that same verse that the Jews had sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to John. And if you skip ahead a little bit down to verse 24, it says those were the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones that sent them. Why? What was going on? John was getting a big crowd of followers, people coming out to him in the Jordan where he was baptizing people. And guess what? Rumor probably got around this was happening. And it probably got back to Jerusalem, to the religious leaders. And the rumor was, could that be the Christ? Maybe it's Elijah who has come. Or could it be the prophet who Moses spoke about? And so the Pharisees sent a delegation out to investigate to squelch those rumors, to prove it as nothing more than some crazy man, some lunatic who's out there doing something on his own accord with no authority. So the first question they ask John the Baptist is, Who are you? Who are you? Look at verse 20 with me. It's really crazy the way it's written for us. It says, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. This word confessed means to make an emphatic declaration, to declare, to assert. But it's interesting. It also says, first he emphatically said it. He did not deny. It means he didn't refuse to answer. He didn't even hesitate to answer. But he emphatically declared, I am not the Christ. Unequivocally. I want you to think about that answer. If Someone asked you, who are you? Is that the first thing that comes to your mind? Oh, I am not the Christ. That's the answer he gave. Think about it. He's asked, who are you? He didn't go, um, uh, hi, I'm John, and uh, who are you? He unequivocally, emphatically states, I am not the Christ. Why? Because why he came, he came to bear witness, not about himself but to give a testimony of someone far greater than himself. And because he gives that answer, and he just says, hey, I am not the Christ, they must press him further. And they press further in, in verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Well, some of you are going, what are they asking? Are you Elijah? My son's name's Elijah. He's like, what? Is that me? It's not who they're speaking of. Elijah, based upon prophecy, the Jews were expecting that the prophet Elijah would return to heaven in bodily form to establish, to be the forerunner, to come before Christ, as Christ established his kingdom on earth. They were waiting for him to come. We read that in the last book of the New Testament. Or excuse me, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, in verse 1, we read: Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. you go, well, I didn't tell me it was Elijah. All right, let's keep reading the next chapter, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you, who? Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. What does that mean? He's going to come and he's going to speak about repenting, turning back to God, turning away from sin, because the wrath of God is coming. He's going to encourage people to turn to God. But here he's asked by this group of priests and Levites, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. You go, well, he's not, he's John. But it's actually very interesting this is pointed out because as far as John knew, he's just John. But there's something if we uncover here, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 6, John the Baptist appeared like Elijah. He was clothed in camel's hair. Why? Elijah was noted to be very hairy. He also wore a leather belt around his waist, just like Elijah had. He came in the same manner, warning people of the coming judgment of God and to flee that judgment and to repent and to turn to God. So although he hadn't come in a literal sense, meaning coming back from heaven, John the Baptist came in an Elijah-like manner. We read about him in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. An angel of the Lord speaking says, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared unbeknownst to John the Baptist, it would later be declared by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14. He says, if you're willing to accept it, speaking of John the Baptist, he is Elijah who is to come. When John was asked, are you Elijah? He wasn't aware of that. He just came as a voice. But Jesus says, that voice, that one who came, he came in an Elijah-like manner. Jesus later explains this to his disciples in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. Jesus, it says, the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And what did they do to him? What happened to him? He got served on a platter. His head on a platter. So I want to go back to when these priests and Levites address him and say, Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Is he lying to them? No, he's completely unaware. He says, No, I am not. He only knew what he knew. He was John. He was simply a voice crying out in the wilderness. Looking back to verse 21 of John chapter 1. They then asked him, well, are you the prophet? They didn't say, are you a prophet? They said, are you the prophet? Again, referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses speaking of a prophet who would come. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So is that him? Are you the prophet, they ask him? And he replies, no, no. So far, they've got nothing out of John to disqualify him from what he's doing. They keep pressing him, which reminds me of Jesus. When Jesus kept being tried and interrogated, he gave them nothing in return that they could try him with. John the Baptist, the forerunner, comes, and they're pushing him for an answer that would disqualify him. And so far, he's given them nothing. So they keep pressing. We see in John chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, they said to him, then, who are you? Who are you? They said, look, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Here it comes. Here's the answer. They're ready to say, see, he has no authority. He's disqualified. Tell the people back in Jerusalem. We need to call him in and let him know he's been disqualified from doing what he's doing. But Look how he answers. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Again, they're interrogating him. They're looking for an answer to disqualify him. They're expecting him to declare himself of having some high authority. And instead, he replies with the most humble of ways. He says, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice that was declared many, many years ago. But you know, it's not just any voice. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which he quotes, He says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He was a voice that was preparing people for the coming Christ. So what is his true identity? He's a witness. He's a voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing people for the coming of the Lord. That's who he is. Nothing of high stature, nothing that he's promoting himself or saying, look at me. He's saying, I've come to point to someone else. My whole time of coming here, my identity is to be a voice. That's it. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this day, a voice. Because as I look out at you, I know you all have a voice. You're going to be challenged what you do with that voice. How you use that voice. John the Baptist comes to be a voice. Point number two, what was the purpose of the witness? Point number two, purpose of the witness. Read with me verses 25 through 28. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across from the Jordan where John was baptizing. What are they doing? They're still pressing him. They're still looking for something to hang John on. And they question him specifically about baptizing. So what authority do you have to baptize? If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, whose authority then are you baptizing under? And what does John do? First, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't even try to defend himself. He doesn't say, hey, hold up. Look at all these people who are following me. Look at all these people who have come out here. Look at all these who have been baptized in repentance. He doesn't say anything like that. Instead, he quickly takes the spotlight off of himself and he shines it to Christ. He says this. Look with me again in verse 26, 27. He says, look, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not even know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. In response to his warnings about the coming judgment, he cries out to everybody to repent, to be baptized in the Jordan as a public expression of repentance. And all these people come out and listen to him, and he says, look, it's not about me. I am simply preparing the way for someone who's far, far greater than me. As a matter of fact, the way he puts it is there's no comparison between he and I. I'm not even worthy to take on the lowliest job of a slave to untie his shoes, his sandals, and to cleanse his feet. He's saying there's no comparison. That You guys come to me asking me questions like I'm something. I am nothing. I am just a voice. There's no comparison between me and who it is that I am pointing to. He says, among you is one who stands, whom you do not know, who comes after me. Remember, his purpose was a forerunner. He was to prepare the way of the Lord. And this is exactly what John the Baptist has done. He's prepared the way by calling people to repentance, by taking the spotlight off of himself and pointing to the one who is able to save. Someone who is far greater than him. And he fulfills a prophecy that was written over 600 years earlier about this voice that would be crying out in the wilderness. If we jump ahead, we read in verse 31. We read, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Who's he? Christ. I came to do this to point to who the Savior of the world would be. What was his purpose? To point to Jesus. To point all people to Jesus. Keep that in mind as we go through the study. You have a voice. And we also see a purpose. To point people to Jesus. Third point this morning we're going to look at is the message. What is that message of this witness? We read in verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look at these words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about that introduction. Here Jesus comes on the scene. He's going to be revealed to everybody. And the announcement is, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's probably one of the most humbling introductions I've ever heard. You know, John could have said, Everybody, bow down. Here comes the king. And that would have been just and right. Because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But he didn't say just bow down and, 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 and in, in honor of him, he said, Look, This guy's coming. Jesus, the God-man, as the Lamb of God, who would give his life to save sinners. Think about that for a second. To save who? Sinners. Those who have rebelled against him. Stop for a second. Let that process for a minute. Those who actively have rebelled against him, he has come to give his life in their place that's crazy who of us would do that i'll tell you none of us none of us the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world john's declaring here is the messiah and he's come for a reason to save people from their sin it is christ who takes away the sin of the world you know it's interesting he says the lamb of god you know the jews would have been very very familiar with that Throughout Israel's history, the Jews knew that their sins could only be forgiven by an acceptable substitute dying as a sacrifice. Lambs are sacrificed all the time. Passover as well as daily in the tabernacle, later on in the temple. But there's something that those animal sacrifices could not do. They couldn't take away the sins of the people. John introduces the Messiah, the Christ, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we put that along with the prologue of John's Gospel, we think about this pre-existing God, Jesus, who was in the beginning, He always was. He comes and takes on flesh. 100% God, 100% man. And He dies in our place. Crazy. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 and 7. Speaking of what the coming Messiah would do, it says in verse 6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, Look this, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's for its shearers of silence, so he opened not his mouth. He came to die. And he came to die in my place. He came to die in your place. But he didn't only come to die, but he also came to raise from the dead to conquer sin and death so that we would no longer have to be enslaved to sin. He took away the sin of the world. Church, this is absolutely the greatest news in human history. And so often as believers, if you're a believer here this morning, we just go, yeah, I know that. Let it sit. Let it percolate a little bit. That Christ came to save sinners. That's you. And that's me. And there are those who would say, yeah, I know that. But you know what? I don't need that. You know there's no other way of salvation? You know the Bible says that we have all sinned? And some of us take that very lightly. Well, we all sin. So we're all in the same boat. We're all human, right? I hear people say that all the time. I'm just human. Yeah, I'm a human, and I have a depraved nature that sins against the holy God. And God, who is holy and righteous, doesn't take that very lightly. As a matter of fact, because of His great mercy, He would send His Son to die in our place. And there would be someone that would go, yeah, whatever. Really? To slap away the hand of God, the love of God? We need to understand the penalty for sin. You guys know the penalty for sin. It's death. It's eternal death. It means that God's wrath is being stored up for all those who have rebelled against him. Guess what? That's all of us. We've all sinned against him. We're all storing up his wrath. And that wrath is poured out for all eternity. But because of God's great mercy, he sent Jesus as the perfect sacrificial lamb who would die once and for all as their substitute. And He would serve as a propitiation for their sins. And what that means is that when Christ died, He died the perfect substitute. He died in our place. He took on the full wrath of God upon Himself, and He satisfied God's wrath. That's heavy. That's seriously heavy. He paid our complete penalty. God's wrath. Is satisfying. But he didn't end there. He also rose from the grave to conquer sin and death, to free us from the bondage of sin. You see, before Christ, before those of us who have trusted in Christ, believed in his name, repented, and turned to him, the Bible says that you weren't free to choose what you want to do. You know, that's our own perspective that I could stop doing this or stop doing that and I could choose what I want. Scripture says, no, you were in bondage. You were enslaved to sin. It is because Christ rose from the dead he broke that bondage that we can now be free in christ jesus is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world but that truth is not universally attributed to all people you see there's some people say oh yeah i heard that jesus died once and for all and it's for everybody and if everybody's saved then you know we'll just go about living our life the way we are that's not what scripture declares Jesus himself said you must repent and believe. There's a response to repent and believe, to turn from living life my way and turn to God, to turn away from my sin, to turn to live God's way. And believe is more than just a head knowledge that, yeah, I believe that Jesus did those things. It means to place my entire trust and my hope in Christ alone and what he has done on the cross. Well, here's the problem. Those of you that have been with us through the prologue know that earlier in the prologue we read that God has to intervene. Because we know what Scripture says about us. It says that we are dead. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people can't do anything to save themselves. It also says that we are spiritually blind. So we can't look for something for help. So something needs to happen. A divine intervention must take place. It has to happen. We saw this in verses 12 and 13 of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, wait, wait, put that in reverse. Those who were born of God were able to receive, to repent, to follow him to get that gift of eternal life, to become a child of God. A divine intervention had to take place. God had to breathe life into that spiritually dead person. He had to reveal Himself to them. For us who believe God has quickened your soul to be able to receive Christ, even right now, the same Spirit of God can be quickening souls to receive Christ. You can't do it on your own. The Bible says these things are foolishness to those who are perishing. When you're like, eh, who cares? The Bible says you're that person storing up the wrath of God. Flee from those things. Run to Jesus. If He's quickened your soul to be able to receive Christ, it's turn, repent, turn to Him. Place your hope and trust in Jesus Christ because He alone is able to save. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. By the way, you've heard me say it before and you've heard the argument before. If there was another way, why would God have to send Jesus Christ to die in your place? Jesus himself said, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. But there was no other way. Salvation would come through Christ alone and we continue to read in the gospel of john chapter 1 verse 30 john the baptist says this is he of whom i said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me john simply is restating what was already said in the prologue that jesus always was he's always been there he was in the beginning he was with the father or he was with god and he was god it's just the the statement that peace always existed. It is the pre-existing God who has taken on flesh. Keep reading with me to the end of our text this morning, verses 31 through 34. It says, I myself did not know him, but for the purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes, listen, church, with the Holy Spirit. And he says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There's a heavenly confirmation of Christ through a visual appearance of the Spirit descending down and remaining upon Jesus. John says, look, I baptized with water. Who was he baptizing people into? And now, an expression of repentance. He's preparing their hearts for the coming of Christ. But he says, "The one who's coming, this Jesus, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit." And church, here is the big separation between those who have a head knowledge and who those who have a genuine knowledge. Those who have truly been God's been revealed to them. Jesus Christ, the gospel has been revealed. And God has granted them the ability to repent, to turn, to believe. But He also gives them His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit who is their helper, their teacher, their guide. The one who leads them in all righteousness. You know, for those who just have a head knowledge of who Jesus is, their lives go on and continue to be the same as they were before. There was no regeneration. There was no new heart, no new spirit put within them. Jesus Christ is the one that gives that. It's only through faith in Christ that He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist's final message here is Jesus is the Son of God. That's what He was called to testify. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. He testified to this glorious news. This morning, as we went through point number one, I said, look, remember voice. You have a voice. And you also have a purpose of using that voice. And you also have a message. And it's the same message that has always been there. It's glorious news of Jesus Christ. And perhaps that message has gone out today and it has struck you in a different way than it struck you before. Because the Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus Christ, to you. He's quickened your soul to believe the gospel. I would encourage you this morning, come to Jesus. Turn to Him in repentance. Follow Him. Trust in Him. Love Him. When we say love Him, that means to obey Him. To love Him. And then you, along with every other believer in this place this morning, is called to testify. I want you to think about that with that voice, with a purpose, and with a message were to tell the world of the marvelous thing that God has done on our behalf. So the question this morning is, have you received that? Have you received personally the wonderful news of Jesus Christ? Not the head knowledge, but has there been transformation in your life? Has has your heart been regenerated? Do you have new desires? Ones that seek after God, to please Him. Ones that are different than before you were regenerated. You see, we often sing Amazing Grace of once being lost and now being found. There's a big difference between those two. Once being blind and now being able to see. Radical transformation comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that is us this morning, that means we have been forgiven of our sins that we've been saved from the wrath of God, and we now are called to testify. I'm going to end the service with a few quotes this morning. First one's from James Montgomery Boyce. I love the way he explains this. He says, witnessing is every Christian's job. Are you a Christian this morning? Well, here's your job. When Jesus Christ spoke to his disciples saying, you do not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, it was evident that salvation consisted not so much in the fact that they had chosen him, but that he had chosen them and commissioned them and us to the task of telling others about him. Called to testify. Look, I'm looking at our church. We're a rather small church. But do you know how many men Jesus gathered to turn their world right side up? There was 12. Not all 12 were very effective. One of them was disqualified. We're more than 12, I'll tell you that. And we're called to testify. Mark Dever puts it this way. He said the Christian call to evangelism is a call not simply to persuade people to make decisions, but rather to proclaim to them the good news of salvation in Christ, to call them to repentance. And to give God the glory for regeneration and conversion. It is a divine intervention of God that saves people. We are just a voice to proclaim a message. Those are fairly soft quotes, but there are others who take off the gloves and come at it a little more straight in your face. I'm gonna get to Spurgeon but I'm going to start with Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter said this, a foolish physician he is and a most unfaithful friend that will let a sick man die for fear of troubling him. And cruel wretches are we to our friends that would rather suffer them to go quietly to hell than we will anger them or hazard our reputation with them. That's a lot to chew on. But think about how often we're fearful of telling somebody the good news. Well, it might cause some awkwardness between us. It might ruin my reputation before them. But we have the good news. Do you believe the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that He is the only way of salvation? So if you watched a blind man walking to the edge of a cliff, would you be afraid to confront him? Would you run to him, grab him? Don't take another step that's what we're called to testify we'll end with Spurgeon Spurgeon said this he said I will not believe that you have tasted of honey of the gospel if you eat it all by yourself you know what he's saying he's saying if you've got the good news and you believe it and you just keep that to yourself he says you probably aren't really a genuine convert because you can't but help to tell others you can't help but tell, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind. I can see. I've been forgiven. If that wasn't straightforward enough, how about this one from Spurgeon? He says, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Whoo! They say, Pastor, that's not very nice. Well, you can blame Spurgeon. He said it. But what he's saying, church, is if you've been regenerated, If you know Jesus Christ, who you were once blind to, you're going to tell people. You're going to let them know. And those of you who have had radical conversion in your life, you can't help but tell. And some of you say, well, Pastor, I never had a radical conversion. I didn't have where I just jumped off the deep end and then Christ came and rescued me. Really? You were that two-year-old that said, no, I didn't have any cookies. You were radically depraved from birth. No one taught you any of that. And God has radically saved you. So although you might not say, well, I don't have this radical testimony that this person has, you know that Jesus Christ is the one who came to save sinners, of which we are all sinners. So if we have received forgiveness of our sins, we've received the gift of eternal life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, how could we not tell others How could we not? Brothers and sisters, we are called to testify. What does that mean? It means tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your coworkers or fellow students, tell the waitress at the restaurant, the clerk at the store, tell them the glorious news of Jesus Christ. Question, Christian, why wouldn't you tell me? That's awkward silencer theory. why wouldn't you tell them? most of it is because it might inconvenience me it might take time it might be embarrassing they might think of me a certain way but we're not our own anymore we've been purchased by the blood of jesus christ paul would say it's no longer i who live but it's christ who lives in me is that your life It's now live out Christ to tell the world what Jesus Christ has done. That He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. That He is the only way unto salvation. Jesus. This Jesus who came in the flesh to take away our sin. Church, testify. Let's pray. Father, we are challenged this morning Father, as Christians in here, those who have professed the name of Jesus, who have called on Him as Lord, who have repented and turned to Him in faith and hope, we're challenged. What are we doing with our voice? With the purpose of it, the message given to us. How faithful are we to tell others who are headed for destruction? God, we are thankful for those who are faithful. Tell us the good news. God, I pray that we would have boldness to open our mouths, to not worry about the fear of rejection or what someone might think or what the people at work will say or the people in my school will do, but we would be bold. Not worried about what the neighbor's going to think or anything else, but we would lovingly tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray in this place this morning if there's any man or woman in this place that was blinded to these truths, that was dead in their trespasses and sin, that you, God, would quicken their soul. That you would draw them to repentance and faith. That today would be the day of salvation. And there would be regeneration in them. They would be given a new heart, new desires. And they couldn't help but to tell others what you have done. God, would you be glorified in us and through us for your great namesake?